If you're traveling in the North Country fire, where the winds hit heavy on the borderline, remember me to one who lives there. For she once was a true love of mine. I'm going to start coming here just for the coffee. Do you need a blankie like me? You know what? I need a blankie. I needed some coffee and a blankie. <laughs> I can't I can't interview slips. people without my blankie. I have to work in real comfort. It's funny. Do you need to work in style? No, no, in comfort. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. But saying like last night you were just smoking like a pipe. There you go. Like a tobacco pipe. And you were like, I love working like this. And I was like, that. No, no, no. Like, it's a comfort it's a thing. It's a comfort thing. It's like regulated breathing. It's like warm and, and soft feet. And I don't know. Well, it's about, I think it's about removing, um, distraction so i don't know if you have a pain in your foot or if you're like a little bit freezing or it's about getting all of that kind of body noise out of the way and sort of being able to enter the idea i think as completely as possible do you do that are you are you that type of person you're like i need comfort space in order for me to like exist in a like a bubble i mean i do I, yeah i think i think i work out of that space i work out of i work in silence i work isolated it doesn't mean i need to exist there all the time but in order to kind of yeah exit the world and enter the idea i need a bit of remove but where do you get the idea from <laughs> exactly right I, I was always interested in this because people are like obsessed with creating this comfortable vacuum mm -hmm. but for me there's like nothing there's actually no actual material to create anything in that vacuum so you have to get it from like that disgusting uncomfortable like my feet hurt <laughs> pain yeah <laughs> i mean maybe it comes out of there in, in sort of its source material but it's it's i don't know i go i have to listen like I mean, it maybe sounds a bit old school, but I have to turn off the noise of the world and like put my hands over my ears and just listen to my head. Have you ever been put in a position where you have to create something, deadline, commission, whatever, yeah. and the actual kind of logistics of you getting in that space is impossible? Like you're traveling for the next two weeks, you're going to be in hotel rooms for the next two weeks going on tour for, I don't know, whatever mm -hmm. thing you might be doing. And also during that time, you have to compose no, you can't really do that, right? You have to yeah. do it under uncomfortable well, conditions. It, it's fun. I think this is where the sort of the slippers and the blanket come in because these are quite portable um, comfort tactics. I actually, I've been more or less homeless for the past three years and maybe nomadic is a bit of a better term than homeless. Yeah. But I've been bouncing between, like I left Boston and I was then bouncing between France and Germany and London and, and really haven't had that kind of nest-like office space where my music is there and it's perfectly set up. So I've really had to learn how to make that comfort, if we're calling it that, mobile and, and be able to kind of access it wherever I am, whenever I'm there. And so that's so I like, think, I don't have a house, but I have a slipper and I have some exactly. blankets. Exactly. And I've got, it. you know, yeah. either a pile of score paper with, a, with some pencils or I've got, you know, my computer and my headphones and I can just get there, you know. So you've been bouncing around for three years. I have. Why? Three and a half. And what have you been doing? I did a couple years in Paris doing the Ircom Cursus. Um, I did the first year in 2008, 2009, then went back to Boston for one last year and then came back, did the Cursus Deux, then did 10 months at Chasse Solitude. And then this year I have, yeah, I have my sort of last year of PhD funding, which I can take anywhere. So I've been sort of pursuing projects in Germany and in France and here. Do you, do you have a, because that's always like this, it's a wave that you, you're riding right now, okay. right? Like the reason you don't have a house, actually, it's like it's none of these things are permanent. Right, and exactly. eventually the idea is that you have a certain time limit and then the wave crashes on the right, shore right. and then you're on the beach and you're like, okay, what do I do now? Right. I'm, plan. I, <laughs> I'm psychologically preparing for that moment. And I think um, in some ways, you know, I'm, I've, I've been away from Harvard for quite a long time, actually. Like I said, sort of the past, well, four of the past five years I've been in Europe. But, um, but it's still been a, a, a rough structure in the back of my mind, even if it hasn't been a sort of physical reality. Like the school, you mean? Yeah, just actually... being in the PhD program. And I'm actually about to graduate in a month. Okay. <laughs> even though it doesn't mean a physical shift in my, in my kind of current reality, it's definitely a noticeable psychological shift of leaving a kind of structured you know, framework in which my art is, is, is taking place and entering the kind of unstructured milieu that most of Berlin seems to find itself in. Okay, so what yeah. uh, uh, what have you done to mentally prepare for this? I got a Fulbright for one thing. That's not preparing <laughs> though, right? That's You caught another wave. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. yeah that's well, not... you know, I think... Um, so I had 
in some ways checking out Berlin. I haven't been living in Berlin this year, but I've been checking it out and sort of preparing a plan B, which is would be moving to the city and, and having a really good time being here and working here with in a community of people who are also maybe find, trying to find the beach after the wave or however you phrased it. Yeah. Um, so that was a kind of a psychological strategy. Um, I'm also just, I'm lucky I'm like really immersed in work right now. And that's, that time frame is, you know, about a year and a half long. So I can sort of, as long as the work is there, the, the geography doesn't really matter so much. And you're, that's kind of giving me the structure, I think, that the cutting the cord finally from yeah, <laughs> Harvard will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You think working in these short time frames, like year, year and a half time frames, that's okay with you? You, you know, know it's, at, it at seems, any point, is there like a, this now, this is what I do for the next 30 years? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. I think for artists that, that kind of consistency only comes from teaching or something, a, a sort of more stable workload. But I think that the actual composing, I mean, we might do projects that take a couple of years, but we also might do projects that take three months. So I think we're, we're sort of operating on a, sh on a smaller time frame. I think, um, a kind of more rapid cycle. When did you realize this, that this is what it was going to be like? Cause I, I looked up yeah. at your bio a little okay. bit and you're an interlocking. Yeah. That's kid, fair. right? So, yeah, yeah. have you known that this is what it was going to be no. since you were a kid? Well, what I did mean, you, what, what did you do in Interlaken? I did compose. I did composition actually. Okay. Um, but so I'm actually. It's quite funny because composition seems like a very impractical thing to do, and being an artist is actually a very difficult thing to to be sort of in its pragmatic and economic reality. Yeah. But um, somewhat ironically, for me, I'm, I was from a really small town and didn't really have much money, and kind of through composition, got scholarships to, to Interlock and then to Oberlin and then to Harvard. It, it was actually kind of my ticket out and seemed like this very practical <laughs> life and work choice for me. And now kind of, as I mentioned, like exiting that structure and that stability, it sort of dawns on you that, oh, actually <laughs> being an artist is an incredibly, um, it's kind of volatile. It, it doesn't involve being a freelancer, you're, you know, you can see it's a bit myopic. You can see sort of maybe a year, two years into your, into your future, but any kind of predicting in 10 years, what, what level of work you'll have, what level of, of income you'll have, what, what the network will look like is, is pretty much at least at this age impossible. Okay. So let, let's get into a little bit of history. You said, where do you come from? Who are you? <laughs> Who the hell am I? Yeah. So I'm from um, a very small town in the very northernmost part of the U.S., which is called Marquette, Michigan. So it's the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You know, there's like two different land masses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People don't even like realize. A, people think it's just the mitten. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but it, right, there's a whole other part. Yeah. Um, it's right on Lake Superior. It's absolutely gorgeous, but it's incredibly isolated. The nearest city is, I mean, it's seven hours north of Detroit. It's seven hours north of Chicago. Um, so it sort of makes a you know a triangle peak on the on the top of those two cities. Um, but it's on Lake Superior, and it's sort of nestled between all those great lakes. But it's just way far north. It's basically Canada. At, at what age were you like, I need to get the fuck out of here? You said, oh, this was yeah. my ticket. <laughs> so at what point were you like, I need a ticket? So it's kind of a funny story, actually. I, I was actually a really kind of rabidly devoted basketball player. <laughs> really? <laughs> really. Okay. I, I'm short. I know it's a surprise, but I was a point guard. And you smoke um, a pipe. I, now, I mean, I don't know. There was a sort of group of girls. We we used to like shovel the court in winter and shoot free throws the whole time. And we were very, we would train all summer and we were a real crew. Um, so, I mean, I was pretty radically intellectually dissatisfied from my public schooling from about the age of seventh grade on. Um, but I would never, ever dream of trying to get away and go to to private school because of because of basketball because we were going to win the states because we had this whole trajectory planned out through high school it was really important for me to to kind of follow that through and i actually got hurt like a few days before my first high school basketball game and i and i never got better and so once that what happened how'd you get hurt it was just it was actually a i mean it was a hip injury that it was sort of systematic i have really flat feet and we were training like crazy and it's it's the thing that just sort of because of the intensity. So I kind of traveled around and got steroid shots and they would make the inflammation go down, but it kept coming back as I was, whenever I would sort of uh, be active again. So I had to, it took me about a year and a half to fully let go. I kept sort of trying to go back. But once I did, I was like, screw this. I need to get, I need to get out of this small town. And so that's when I went into my counselor's office and said, I got to get out of here. And she actually suggested interlock and I hadn't heard of it before. So that's amazing. So what are you like 16? I'm, yeah. I'm taking a guess now. So that's a young age for, I think, I think everybody has a certain amount of angst at that age where you're like, eh, man, fuck this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But for you to actually be like, I'm leaving this town at the yeah. age of 16. I'm, it's a very kind of you know, defiant personality almost. Yeah. What did everybody around you think? In some ways, they were surprised. I actually had, um, 
I had been playing classical piano and actually composing since I was four or something. It was a oh, huge wow. part of, those, of my huh? okay. my life. But I but my public persona really didn't involve arts. It wasn't a place where classical music was known about or there weren't big symphonies or anything. So again, my kind of public I have three older brothers and we were, I was like an athlete. And so when I said all of a sudden I was going to this art school, I think probably quite a few people were surprised. Um, and my parents were happy, happy for me, but obviously it's kind of tough to send your 16 year old away. I mean, I was the youngest and, you know, I think it was, it was emotionally difficult for my parents, um, and financially scary. But like I said, we kind of worked something out scholarship wise and yeah, I don't know. Did it work for you? Uh, were you like, were you like, an, thank God I'm here and it's not an there? Unbel- I mean, it's, it's an unbelievable place. And it really was. I mean, not everybody comes from sort of shitty public schools, but I, I really did. And so, I mean, sitting in English class the first day, I mean, I like cry. I, I mean, it was just. You didn't know anything or what? No, I cried because it was so, it was so enriching. It was so challenging. People were engaged. People were like. The teachers were incredible. I mean, it really was, it was such a rich place, creatively, intellectually, academically. It was incredible. It really was. What's your music like at that age? You know, like, what are you, yeah, so what are you I mean, doing? I think a lot of that, you know, my, I think I stopped piano sort of. I was in, in kind of high Rachmaninoff phase or like was maybe doing a Chopin ballad and, and I wasn't writing tonal music, but it definitely had that emotional intensity and the volatility and the kind of, um, yeah. There's, some, there's something about like Rachmaninoff or like late romantic composers and like being 16 years <laughs> I know, old it's perfect, and like right? everybody's like, I want to be that. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. And it was definitely the language that felt most natural, I think, in that hormonally charged phase. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah I know. Oh, so, man. Yeah, it started there. But I still have, I mean, what was nice about being at Interlochen is that, I mean, there's obviously incredible players around. Um, so I really, I mean, I have recordings of my work from that age and it's, it's pretty interesting to listen to my 15 year old self and what the hell it had to say and how that relates to where I am now. And so and after that, you decide to go for Oberlin. I, I know a yeah. bunch of Oberlin people. They've all been amazing human beings, like on a yeah. level. What is up with that? Uh, hippie, <laughs> Funny, open-minded I, school. I actually just went back. I, I, um, I filled in for a professor who was on sabbatical last spring. Um, so I went back to teach as a professor, which was a very different angle into the culture that I was immersed in as, you know, an 18 year old. Wait, when was this? When did you do this? Just last spring. So I, I, last academic year. Did you know, you know, Eric? Which Eric? Wubbles? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, so Eric came, he started this past year, I think, but he came in to interview while I was there. I was filling in for Josh Levine, who was on sabbatical. Yeah. So I was just back for a few months, but it was, yeah, it was, it was an interesting take on, I think I'm able to articulate the oddity of that place a little bit better from that outsider's professor's perspective than I was um, being an insider, being stuck in it, but. So articulate it. (laughs) I mean, it's a very special place from what I hear and also the type of person that I meet who came from that school. Yeah, I think, and I, I guess I would separate the conservatory from, from the college, although the, con- I mean, they, they, they attract a different type of person for different reasons. But at the same time, conservatory students, I think, also um, get caught up in this spirit. But people there tend to have, a, I would say, a bloated sense of their own uniqueness. <laughs> the motto of the school is think per- one person can change the world, so do we, which is, which is, it's a great spirit to have. And I, I, I appreciate it and kind of, you know, think it, it plays an important role in, in the academic climate in the U.S., but um, it means that, you know, people there really, they, they really think that what they're saying is extremely right and extremely yeah, yeah. unique and like different than what anyone else has ever thought or said in their, in their, in their lives. But and, at the same time, they're 20. Yeah, exactly. So what the hell do you like? <laughs> exactly. yeah, well, but yeah. at the time, I probably felt that I was as unique as everyone else, but going back as a professor, you're like, oh dear. Oh God, I was a hack. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, everybody, I mean, you know, sure, there's a lot of, there's a lot of energy there and that, that's, that's nice, but it's also, it makes tiny differences seem like vast. Like vast. Yeah, that was my question. Okay, a, a lot of energy there, but how much of it is really kind of a different type of energy? From what I hear, it's mm-hmm. a, like it's a liberal bastion, right? This which is, is thing, which yeah. is great, but then people aren't really kind of. This is the thing. Co- re- I mean, really yeah. confronted with like, I'm mean, like, there's not like a gun nut crazy conservative is yeah. not going to send his kid to Oberlin. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so there was still tons of like polemics and what seemed like really fierce political struggles on campus but looking at it from an outsider's perspective they were happening and happening in this tiny sliver of kind of thought this tiny this tiny little political wedge on the spectrum do you think that actually every institution has that for some type of in some way that we like to pretend that there's like this huge kind of 
debate going on within an institution with all these different perspectives. But in reality, it's basically people who are like-minded fighting over a tiny little nuance of mm-hmm. just one particular point of view instead of like actually having everything come in. I'd say that's how new music is. <laughs> is it, that's exactly right. what I want to talk yeah, about. It. So yeah, yeah. as someone who's actually been to a lot of places and done a lot of things, what's your experience working with that? Do you go with the flow? Do you go against the flow? When you go to a place, do you try and fit in or are you go there to be the contrarian 16-year-old, fuck this, I'm going to interlock in, you know? <laughs> I don't think I've ever tried to be a contrarian. I don't really... Um, well, I think resistance is maybe... Resistance and suspicion of of what's assumed and what's status quo is is can be a positive force. I also think that, like knee-jerk rebellion isn't necessarily the healthiest kind of artistic motive. Um, no, but there's also an intelligent yeah. way to analyze something and then yeah. and, and point out what it's missing or what you think is it's missing. Yeah, and, and who knows, maybe, I mean, I'm not the only one who's who's been wandering over the past or who's in a country where they didn't they didn't grow up. I mean, this seems to be actually like a, a more and more common phenomenon in our generation and our, this generation of artists and, and just young people in general. Um, and maybe we do have a are a bit more circumspect because we have we because those assumptions aren't as ingrained in us and in, in the culture, cultures in which we live. I try to see things clearly, but I also don't want to just I don't want to be that teenage rebellious person. You know, I, it's I want the the motive to be um, yeah something else. But do you try and fit in where you are? Then I'm not sure I would have, would phrase it that way. For, yeah, for, for, okay, so phrase it in a less negative way for me because I can't come up with a yeah. Other way. Well, I, like, I, well, so. I'll use a maybe more current example, um, which is my time spent at IRCOM. It's an interesting place. It, it, it has a big budget, it has a big reputation, and I think it has a, um, a lot of – people have a lot of assumptions about what work happens there and yeah. why it happens there and what kind of music you're going to make if you go there. Um, and I've heard a lot of people – I'm totally guilty of that, by the way. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's okay. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I've had a lot of people ask me, Wait, but, you know, how can you work in that environment? Don't, don't they, basically, don't they ask you to just write, like, clean music? There's a lot of assumptions about what types of live electronics happen. And and I don't know, I just didn't, that doesn't make sense to me as either a fear or a critique. I mean, you go somewhere, you make the music you're going to make, and if it works, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean... The idea that somebody would, I, I hear a lot of people self-selecting out of your com and they self-select out because, um, they're afraid that when they go there, they're gonna, there's gonna be some strange pressure that's fo- forcing them to operate in this certain aesthetic. And, um, I had actually really wanted to enter into, I would say, I guess, installation, sort of the world of installation art. Um, but, to say even more broadly, I'd really been wanting to um, work with sound outside of the concert hall and and work in kind of a, a more synesthetic environment where where there are other media kind of wrapping into sound. Um, I'd been wanting to do that for quite some time. Why? What made you want to go there? I don't know. I want to. I just want to. I, <laughs> I mean, I'm really interested in saturation and like perceptual immersion and really wanting to take the body of the perceiver and like hit it with a lot more stimulus and craft that stimulus. To really pull that off, I mean, there's so many dangers in that kind of work. Um, I didn't want and don't want, um, like, you know, lights on top of sound, on top of video, on top of, I mean, this sort of separation in multimedia. I wanted something way more fused. And yeah, we can talk about that. But what Earcom gave me was the, like, the production support was unbelievable. Um, I had a collaborator, a French artist that I was working with that year. And I mean, I'm not telling you the structure that we built was like, you know, it was 50 feet wide. It had like 32 motors. It had, it had 20, um, like, you know, 16 infrared sensors. It had all of these sort of, the apparatus, I couldn't have, not only would I never have had the budget to do it, I wouldn't even have had the know-how of like, or the confidence, I think, to enter into a scheme that kind of complex without the the production support at Earcom is unbelievable. Like the resources, the, the, the structured manner in which like we met every single week to talk about what needs to be ordered when and where, you know, where's it coming from and what stage are we at? And I think that kind of really tangible, practical knowledge was in this case, the, the of the big project I made had much more impact than the kind of max skills I was learning. You don't you you don't think you would have been able to pull off what you you pulled off with this installation stuff without that support without that. I I think I, I it was really 
no, I, I mean, I hadn't yet. That was the perfect environment for me to do it. And I think it gave me a lot of confidence to go for it. It gave me a budget to go for it, but also just it, kind of practical support. It's a perfect environment. It's also a very artificial environment, isn't it? I, I mean, mean, it is like, God bless the French government for doing this, but yes. just saying that they reserved the money to create this space where people could have whatever they want. But the problem is that people only visit that space. Nobody sets up or very few people actually end up setting up a house and having, you know, and having that available to them throughout their whole life. So you go into that the space, mm -hmm. you're able to do this thing. But then once you leave it again, A, your projects can't survive anywhere else because it costs so much to get it done mm -hmm. that without that bubble created, it, it just it can't survive. You also have to find a way to continue that work. On a very, you know, on a very low budget. Yeah, you know? but actually our installation has traveled, it continues to tour and has toured kind of all over. It was in Montreal, it's going to Rome, it's been in five or six different festivals in France. It's, it was designed to tour and, and there has really been a house for it. In fact, a much bigger house in some ways than the con concert music I've, I've written. Um, maybe just a different house maybe than the concert music happens in. So I'm not saying I need that kind of support every time, but sort of the first time for me to enter into a project like that, it gave me a kind of confidence and I learned so much through watching that process unfold. Then I did one at, I did another installation at Schloss Solitude um, last year, which I completely did myself. I soldered the um, sensors myself. I, I figured out, I mean, I did all the wiring myself. It was Jesus, you know solo. all that stuff. I learned it. I did. I learned it. <laughs> Wait, did you? You had to teach that to yourself? For example, teach soldering yeah, at Yeah, so I was... They don't teach soldering at Yerkam, no. But because I didn't have someone to do it for me, I, I was actually at Oberlin when I was when I was kind of preparing the project and there was a guy there who um, runs the sort of Tamara studios, the tech studios. And he um, helped me talk through what sensors would be best and he showed me... And he helped me figure out what to order and he showed me just how to do one. He gave... I mean, I bought a soldering iron and... And then I just did, you know, all million of them myself. Um, so I had a little bit of guidance, but it's a perfect example of at, an, at Earcom, I wouldn't have done that myself. But this next project was, I, I did, and I kind of knew what questions to ask, had the confidence to kind of have a crazy multimedia idea and then try to pull it off. So I'm feeling a bit more independent on it now. Do you work like that a lot, though? Like, here's this thing that I want to do. I have no idea how to do it. And now I have to learn a completely different skill set, like soldering. I, again, this is, I think, part of the confidence that I gained going through that first big project at Yercom. I think, like I said, I had kind of wanted to play around with this shit before, but I just, where do you even start? I don't know how to do anything like that. I don't know what skill. I mean, I know how to write string quartets and I know a little bit about electronic music now, but in terms of the, the, the visions I was having about the other media I wanted to incorporate, they were weirder and wilder than I had any skills to kind of articulate. But I, I'm learning now. Like, I, you know, you might not know how to use that sensor, but if you have a sense of sort of how to map data as it's coming in and, and how to use that to manipulate sonic responses, like you, the system's, there, are, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of learning that world, which can apply to a bunch of different environments. Um, How old were you when you first started going in this direction? So this is very recent. I mean, that tripwire was what, 2010, 11? Okay, so late twenties. You're in, so in your late twenties. In my late twenties, but I actually um, the project I did at Germ in Germany last year was actually with my brother, who's an architect. Okay, I'm, um, yeah. we both went to um, the American Academy in Fontainebleau, in Fontainebleau, France. There's a little um, like art school there, but they they have a music and visual arts, and um, the visual arts is actually just architecture, and they have also composition in the music program. By chance, so Adam, my brother, went to the University of Michigan, and which is in Ann Arbor. And when I was in Oberlin, I used to kind of drive up in my old Buick and pick him up on the way to go north for Christmas. One year when I was doing that, after my second year of college, I went out with a crew of, he, he was in architecture school at the time, and I met his studio teacher. It was kind of after their juries or something. And she happened to be a French woman who taught at this school um, in the summers and said, oh my God, you're a composer? He's an architect? You guys should totally apply to go to this thing together. And so we did back in the day and we did a big collaborative project there when I was, what, 20, 20 or something and, and he was 22. And then we just did another much bigger project last year. My point was my conversation with him has actually been really formative, that continual conversation. And even though it only kind of we really, really acted on it just until last year, it's been a dialogue I've been invested in and ideas I've been kind of yearning for, for to wanting to act on for, for quite a long time. 
I, I always think about this. Was there like a breaking point where you're like, I have to do this? And then before that breaking point, you're like, that's not really what I do. I'm not trained in that. Yeah. But then like all of a sudden, like you feel this, like it's almost calling for you somehow. And mm-hmm. then you're like, okay, I just have to guess kind of like start over with my skill set and learn how to solder to put stuff together. Yeah, I had a I had a real moment like that. There was a beautiful exhibit of Xenakis's drawings in New York at the Drawing Center and I went down to see it um or I was in New York for something else. There was a whole kind of part of the exhibition which was about his his polytopes, his his huge, do you know his multimedia projects at all? They're just they're really nutty. I mean, they're so there was some that were um there's one that was for the opening of the Pompidou Center where he, you know, built a kind of massive inflatable structure and there was... Oh, that one I know. Yeah, yeah, okay, I know that one, so yeah. There's that one and then there's what, like, the, the piece Persepolis was actually designed for, which we know probably is a tape piece now, but it was designed for, like, these ruins in ancient Persia and, like, it was in the middle of the night and there was, like, a choir of, like, 200 children carrying torches, like, in some kind of Sanskrit... I forget actually what they spelled out with their bodies, but there were roaming smoke and lights and there were these really immersive multi-sensory um projects and I, so i went to see this exhibit and, and i came back from it being like i ha- it's done i have to do it i don't know what they are and i just started sort of kind of frantically visionating a bit on these these strange projects that i wanted to create that i didn't have a language for or really the technical know how to do it but kind of realized at that moment that again this this concert hall started to feel like more of a, of a constriction, I think. So do you think that eventually you'll leave the concert hall with like your work? It's an interesting, and, yeah. You know, you know, because, okay, so that moment is I want to do this. And then also the implication is I'm not so interested in this anymore. Mm-hmm. That's not actually, that only gives me 30% of what I want, 40% of what I want. And this gives me closer to 100, like 90 or yeah, something yeah, like yeah. that. So did you make a hard break? You obviously didn't because like some of your music I looked at, was just acoustic. Totally, totally. So what's your plan? Do you have a long-term, I'm going to yeah. eventually get out of the concert hall and just do installations plan? Are you like, I can do both. And is that a lie? You're telling yourself, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, what's your... It's funny. I So I tend to jump off cliffs and I'm a real conviction junkie and my brother Adam's the same way. And, you know, we just... So when I came back from that Zanakis exhibit, I came to Stephen Takasugi's office and I was like, Steve... And he just, I, I felt like oh, I would never be able to write concert music again. And I was only going to be able to, I needed to get the balls to like do this stuff. And whether I had the skills or not, I mean, he listened very supportively and he loved the noise, but he's just like, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be all one or the other, you know, you, and after I kind of worked through the, some of these new ideas and right now I actually get very different things out of both of these media, both of these kind of genres, if we call them. And, um, right now they counterpose each other really interestingly for me. And I'm able to access and challenge myself in different ways, depending on the context. So I see myself kind of going back and forth between them. That's, that's how it is right now. And I, I, that's, I think how I see. Don't you have this fear of in saying, I have to do both because I've committed to one for such a long time. And mm-hmm. okay, now I discovered this thing that works better for me because of this fulfill this commitment that you made to yourself about the old thing. But in grabbing onto that, you're not perfecting and spending all the energy you need in order to get good at the sound installation thing. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Is like, is that a fear? Do you think that's happening? I think the works are really, really related. They don't look like it on the surface that a, that a sextet could be related somehow to some like massive screen or vibrating like elastic strings or whatever like we made with tripwire um but they're deeply the the kind of sonic ideas i'm exploring the sort of perceptual ideas i'm exploring they have a lot of crossover and i think they highlight that they're each of those genres have like everything there's trade-offs you know they have things that they they are great for and other things that are more difficult so i think that the the sensory it reframes all these questions of temporal form and like objecthood and author authorship and like um, audience engagement, all of these things, they attack those questions in very different ways, the two genres. They set up those questions in really different ways. And I like having to answer, I, have to, I like having to change the way I answer those questions regularly. And the formal ideas, the sonic ideas that I'm attacking in both, they have tons of crossover. I figure things out in Soma that I'm applying to Veer, I figure, like an installation piece, um, and vice versa. So right now the feedback's really invigorating. It doesn't feel like a vestige. Um, of some, you know, something I'm doing because I'm supposed to. Um, it may at some point, like, who knows? Do you think good. it will, though? I mean, can't you see these things coming kind of, like, deep down in your gut? <laughs> you know, you're like, okay, this is what I need to tell myself to, like, make it 
day to day, but deep down, I know in the long run, I'm probably going to end up leaving that. In the long run, access to and the ability to intervene in the ritual in which my work is presented and my work is experienced, and I think the gallery or the outside of the concert hall space gives me a lot of access to controlling those Details, it is better, it's better at that. I mean, yeah. Up, and so yeah. I think one of the reasons I would love to live somewhere someday <laughs> and not just continue my nomadic lifestyle <laughs> is because, you know, I'm interested in, I, I think concert or if, let's call them sort of pieces of fixed duration and fixed form. They can, they can be, there, there may be opportunities for me to engage in that ritual a little bit more. I think I want to more and more with concert hall. I think I will get less and less comfortable just outsourcing those decisions to kind of Walking into this structure and being like, okay, clap, string quartet, write a piece for string quartet, clap, then boom, next piece. Um, I can imagine myself get, getting more and more dissatisfied with that presentation mechanism, but not necessarily with the content of a fixed piece. Like it's not, it's not just the fixed form that bothers me. It's more the, the ritual around it, I would say. So if I could maybe present that fixed form in a different environment or in, um, do you have any ideas? What you you must? I mean, okay. So this seems like a problem to be solved. Do you have any potential solutions to do that? Well, I don't know. I haven't. I mean, the you're calling or you're pointing to, or maybe even calling me out on something that is really present, which is that right now those two those two sides of my life are a little bit um, separated in the sense that like I've been purging all of my dramatic impulses that again want to craft experience and want to provoke in more senses than one. I've been putting all of that into my installation work and in the meantime, kind of really challenge, like using the concert hall to focus on, on form and sonic detail and kind of challenge my chops a little bit on a, um, in a way that in the installations, it's, it's, it's also difficult to do. I care a lot about form. I love time. I love like, you know, that's, those are fascinating questions for me to, to answer that in the context of an installation where people enter and leave as they will. The, the questions of form are very different. I do still care a lot that but it's more flexible i mean you can also and en- they enter and leave as they will if that's what the premise is for the installation mm-hmm. you can also you can also give them yeah, a more true. bookended experience it's true open forms are also limited in the sense that like i think that the sort of collective silence of a concert hall and the the kind of captive audience of it and the sort of fixed structure of it does allow the expression and the an attention towards a kind of formal detail and temporal complexity yeah. that is you just don't get if you walk in and walk out and you're walking you know middle and yeah. blah, blah. it's 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 hard to give somebody a sense of your unique way of timing something if it's a sound installation yeah 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 and it's not impossible and that's like I think one of the the most challenging things about working in installation is like I said I. I, lo- I, I want to sculpt time and, and I, I don't want to just make an, a kind of passive reactive system, which is like inert until somebody walks in and boo boo does this and then it stops. And I, I want more attention. Um, and, and that's, so the, the formal questions are still quite interesting there about how, and I like the pushback of I can control some, but sort of lessening my control in installations. Uh, yeah. I love those questions I can answer in the concert hall as well. Do you think this frustration is because I talked to, a number of people who have found very different solutions but still have the same type of frustration of the concert hall okay. setting. Is this just like a uh, an undercurrent that everybody feels at this moment in time that it's of our generation? I'm not of our generation. Oh, my God. I'm going to edit that out. But you know, no, you know what I mean? I think it's a fair yeah, – to say yeah. or say our kind yeah. of time period. And I get it. You know, I get it too. My problem is, is that I love the idea of like complete ownership, like the egotistical ownership. And, I'm, and there's a disconnect between actually – what I feel is important for an audience member to experience and the fact that I need to own every single bit of it, mm-hmm. you know, but I still know what you're talking about with this social frustration of uh, people sitting down in the seat and dictating the amount of time that they have. And it's a very, you know, it's a very narrow experience compared to the other type of experience I can get outside of even outside of art, mm-hmm. you know, just doing anything. Totally. So like, do you think that Everybody is feeling this at this moment and is trying to find a solution to get away from that experience somehow. There is something about the the concert hall, the ritual of it that feels sort of vestigial to me. That feels like it's it's an inheritance from another time where it had a lot of kind of meaning, I think, or made a lot of sense. And it's just for many reasons doesn't quite make as much sense right now yeah, for yeah, us, yeah, yeah. you know. But I don't know. I think we we're all at the same time. It's a tradition that that we. Like it or not, we do come from, and the funding structures that still exist 
exist within that sort of structure as do well. Do we come from that tradition? No, I mean, what do you mean by whether or not we like it, we come from it? Well, I feel like the education I had sort of came, you know, not that I'm like carrying some torch that like Haydn passed to Mozart who passed to Beethoven, but, but I was certainly like raised, like studying that music and like studying, raised in terms of my education as a composer was very much steeped in that tradition. You yeah. Know? Yeah. So I'm not at all saying you know, screw you and screw the man. And so I'm not meaning that to be a kind of like, ugh, that those people are gross and that money is gross. But I also just think that it doesn't, it just doesn't quite fit, I don't think, with us anymore. And, and we're, it's up to us to find, find these new contexts. It's so common, that frustration, that it's, it's really easy, actually. So what's hard is doing something about it. <laughs> and I had but really easy to feel that frustration. Yeah, and it's really, really easy. Just easy to complain about it and say, oh, like concert music, it's so lame. And I, mean, I had tons of, you know, my students at Oberlin last spring who were, you know, just, this is a little gross. Like, I just don't, I don't really want my work there. But, you know, okay, then you figure it out. You find the context. You stage the ritual. You get the the money. You get whatever you need in terms of space, in terms of resources, and pull it off. I mean, that takes energy. That takes a proactive spirit, an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, and I think anyone who's going to complain about it n- needs to own up to the fact that pulling something else off is is there. Then you know, it's completely up to you. Yeah, it's completely up to you. Congratulations, you feel the same problem that everybody yeah. else feels. What are you going to do about so it? Above, yeah. like I, I can say that. So I'm actually doing a another project with Yercom, actually, or co- funded by them. But um, it's with a choreographer. It's a big dance piece, and this is a new this whole working with other humans and in other kind of contexts. The artist, the architect, the choreographer. That's a it's it's a kind of it's a stretching that's interesting to me in the in the actual creative process in terms of putting these pieces together. Those collaborations are putting me into contact with different audiences and different sort of physical situations in which to present this work and all of that feels like really productive tension right now having to justify myself to a broader and my choices to a less specialist audiences to to people who are like less fluent in the language that i speak it also goes to the point where something that you thought was the most accessible thing in the world oh so so much yeah yeah they're like they're like i didn't get that one thing you're like that was the clearest part of the piece everybody knows what that that is because i'm really you know i'm like trying to like i'm engaging rhythm right now and polyrhythm and like and and i i feel like i'm writing pop music and i play it to people and they're like that is not square push. That is not like yeah, our conditioning. It's so funny. Our conditioning is so specialized and fucked up that oh, like well, that's the th- also thing. Once we kind of step out to someone who's hasn't taken the time to immerse themselves in what mm-hmm. we do in their life, the most basic, common, simple rhetoric things are like completely foreign to them. But a certain way, that's really bad. That means we're off, right? Does it? That so. that means we're really missing the mark when it comes to like making things for other people besides ourselves. I work with dancers too, so I've experienced okay, this, cool. and, I'll, and yeah, they're like, time. "Bring us the other, like, bring us some music." You know, completely interested, really smart, open-minded people, and they know a lot about early twentieth-century music, and like, they know they, they knew a lot about John Cage and Felbin. They're all Germans. I'd be like, "Okay, time to start simple." You know, yeah. I'm like, I'm like <laughs> teaching them. So, New Music 101, and I was like, "Okay, I'll bring in like Grise Vortex." That's a piece that I think anybody would love. Right. Yeah. That's because it, it was. I so instantly fell in love with it myself. Yeah. Thinking that, of course, everybody else is going to have that mm-hmm. reaction. It's such this amazing, visceral kind of clear, teachable piece totally, thing. Totally. And they listen to it, and these are really, again open-minded people, and they're like, I don't know. They like couldn't. There wasn't much for them to grab onto. And I'm like, oh my god, how? Really yeah, 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 yeah. I'm like, I'm off. As far as my relationship to the general public. And the the actual thing that I'm making and also what they're able to take in and digest, I'm off. Yeah, but it's funny because it, it happens even... I mean, it happens to everybody in some sense, but I think new music, it's really yeah, big. It does, yeah. but there's another phenomenon that happens when I'm writing electroacoustic... Or not just electroacoustic music, but listening and listening and listening. I work with noise and work with like chaotic timbres almost exclusively, you know, so not necessarily things that are easily recognizable on the outside, but inside of these things I hear melody and line and structure I, I i get to know them so well these noises that i hear all sorts of there'll be a melody in there that i think is so obvious but i've heard it so many times that i i hear a level of detail in these sounds that like 
even a new music audience doesn't necessarily hear or even a, so there's also a kind of disorientation of like my intimacy with the material and then that that just hitting someone might be a sort of a listener you know schooled in contemporary music or with a lot of reference that still you know confronts the material in, in a different way but so with this dance piece it's funny because I had to bounce a couple of extracts for the um, producers kind of on the dance side not here comes doing the music production and we're getting co-producers to stage the premiere next June and um, and so I had these like small small little bits I had it's gonna be like a 65 minute piece but I had like four or five different little excerpts and I played them to my boyfriend who's not in contemporary music and my other good friend Clara who's a who's a composer and both of whom whose opinions I value and they they both my point is is that Clara also didn't think it she didn't think it was any more accessible than Dom did <laughs> it's not just sort of the the move motion from a specialist audience to an unspecialist audience it's also I think yeah I, I get that disorientation just because I know my material so 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 well and whenever it confronts the world there's always a, an alienation that is kind of difficult to deal with but is there a way to reduce that alien like isn't that that i asked myself this all the questions so this is not me like 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 i think i'm just as guilty as it as you are like you're so obsessed with the specific detail and you're Mm -hmm. so used to hearing it a specific way how you put it together that it's just impossible for when you put it out there for them to pick up your intentions of an incredibly nuanced idea Mm -hmm. that even the example you were saying well someone who's actually in the field can't get it in is that bad composing well this is i think it comes down to it comes down to um, I mean, not needing ownership over an experience. But you have an idea and you want to present it, right? I don't have you- an idea. It's not a semantic idea. It's not a thing that like, oh, I want you to hear this. Like, it's about it's about instilling a vitality. It's about embedding like so much, <laughs> like as much life force, forgive me, as you possibly can inside of an excerpt. So there's a lot to peel out of it. There's a lot to pull out of it. And what someone else pulls out of, out of it may be, they may apply different sort of words to it to describe it than I would in composing it. Or they may, um, if there's a level of intensity where 10 is pure engagement and zero is completely like indifferent, you know, that clearly like there's, there are fluctuations in that kind of engagement. You can't, you can't bank on that with any listener, but um, I don't think a difference of experience is problematic. I guess I'm just saying What if they give, what if, what if they get something out of it that you completely didn't intend? I don't intend shit. I don't know. Like I, I can't. You intend shit though, right? You have to. I can't prohibit a reaction. Like, if somebody thinks it's crap, it's, you know, for that person, it has, it has failed for sure. I'm not talking about yeah. them thinking it's crap. I'm talking about mm. them, for them to be like, this is what I got out of it. And it was some idea that you didn't think about it for a millisecond. Yeah, I while love writing that. I piece. think it's fascinating. And this is what I mean about embedding a kind of vitality and an energy that is mutable, that when it actually like crosses into the threshold of another person's experience or mind, that it, who knows what form it takes, but there's some kind of motion happening there. There's some kind of reaction and they're, I think they're fascinating, but words are always faulty. Like, but w- w- when you're running down a technique, mm-hmm. like a, you know, w- whatever extended sound technique, like that's something that's an intention. You're like, I want them to hear this sound in a certain way, and it's going before this material, which mm-hmm. means that the juxtaposition of these two things, blah blah blah, like that's what you're thinking, mm-hmm. and don't, and that's an important thought to you. Don't you want to communicate that thought to you know Joe Schmo or Johannes Schmo or you know like. <laughs> Johannes Schmo, yeah. my favorite. I guess I just don't buy the premise so much. I mean, I think it is literally present and sort of the, the communication, if, if what we're talking about is temporal organization of material and the specific choice of material, that isn't changing from person to person. What's changing is the listening reaction to that material. And that is something I... But that, that is something I'll never be able to control, and I don't really want to control. You'll never be able to completely control it, but you'll be able to set up a margin where you can say a certain set of the public. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like, okay, okay, who is the public? But uh, people listening are going to fall within that margin. And then maybe some guy will go sleep in the yeah, corner. Of course, look, he'll have a I weird mean, dream. But if I play a dominant chord, people have a pretty, you know, let's say you go do, re, mi, fa, sa, la, ti, right? And this is the, everybody knows what comes next, right? It's do, unless it doesn't come next. So of course that some of the most obvious games of, uh, about communicating to the, to that wide array or co- communicating really clearly just don't, don't really interest me. Like I'm, I think clarity of kind of conviction and intention and that, that's a, that's something that is a value to me. But clarity of surface is not necessarily... Being the most obvious isn't always the best aesthetic choice, I guess is my point. Like, I don't think obviousness and clarity are the same thing. No, neither, neither yeah. do I. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. I buy it. <laughs> <laughs>
you know what I'm talking about a little bit though, right? Like, I do. As far as, and I, I always think of this as far as like in terms of like what happens when I think, I think of this when people start doing political music, like very clear music based on a very concrete political idea. Let's say you're trying to preach a certain ideology and those are the intentions of the composer right. as he's writing it down. Right. But then again, if you're not careful enough, and then again, if you're too obvious, then of course it becomes propaganda or like something like ugh, painful to watch. Mm-hmm. If you're not clear enough, then they can be like, oh, I listened to your piece and this character was the bad guy in this thing. And then the composer's like, oh, no, that's not what I intended. And not only that, but now like the weird kind of public service I thought it was providing, it had the opposite effect. And I'm wondering if there's some type of like yeah. abstract acoustic reality to that where someone could be like, oh, I heard this scratch tone and I heard that it was connected to this. And you're like, actually, my idea was the opposite yeah. of that. And that means that as far as our relationship goes of me making something and you taking it in, that's a failed relationship. You literally didn't understand what I was saying. Should that be concerned? I mean, not for you, but like, I'm obviously spreading this out to like everybody. Is that connected to like the two people who didn't get like, you know? Well, they got what the just, my point was that me. they got, they got something very, yeah, they, they got something that's sort of different than what I got. Like it was way more evident, yeah, evident to me than, than it was to, or maybe it's even the things that I was worried about. I was worried about it being a certain way and they were like, don't worry, it's really not like that. Oh, that's <laughs> another, that's, that. that's another upside though. That it was you more think, that. Yeah. It was yeah. like, oh shit, yeah. is this sounding? And, but yeah. yeah. You think you're being like a cheesy, super that's derivative it. composer exactly. and they're like, I never heard anything like this exactly. in my life. It was this more weird... that reaction. Okay. Yeah, it was, okay. it was that. Oh, so you're relieved that they were like, I don't know. Absolutely. And you're like, oh God, thank God they weren't like, you're so ripping this guy off. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Cause these things that feel really evident and obvious and sort of surfaces to me were, were much more nuanced and complex, I think, when they when they hit out. Um, I think it's dangerous territory. I think music can become propaganda really quick, whether it is political propaganda or the propaganda, propaganda for exactly what I think. And like, no, 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 there's this one way to hear it. And if you don't hear it this way, then you're wrong. I mean, it doesn't seem to be, to me, the most fruitful way to think about the aesthetic transaction as like a kind of a concrete semantic meaning that's being portrayed. You see this in the, I was just at the Jewish Museum last weekend and, um, you know, it's a beautiful building, but Liebeskind's so overt. Like in the wall panels, it's like, you know, I have angled the hallway this way so as to disorient and like the, you know, to experience sadness. I mean, I'm not trying to minimize his, his aesthetic choices, but he seems so concerned with conveying the specific emotional intention that it almost feels like an elementary yeah but but he but but then again this goes back to what i was like he has to because god forbid somebody misinterprets a jewish museum and they're like yeah man i'm totally with you i don't like jews either (laughs) then it's like whoa i better make this more clear so nobody gets that message yeah 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 yeah. maybe but we have less risk of that i think as composers yeah uh, yeah 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 yeah. but yeah of course like the stakes aren't the same yeah like they're very very low but i think it still kind of works on that fundamental level yeah and like don't get me wrong i care a lot that there is some kind of transaction that that motion is pushed that something is that there is that engagement, but the words people put to what that engagement is or what the piece does for them are not, are words that fascinate me and not ones that I really want to be able to predict or off or usually can, can predict, you know? Yeah. Everybody could say, Oh, it was a chromatic scale. Okay. So they all got it. They got the same thing, but like, what, what is, what is that kind of transaction? What I'm not interested in that one to one mapping of, of intention and, and reception. Maybe. But your, your acoustic music, let's start, let's start talking about your music a little okay. bit. I forget. It's okay. Don't worry about it. I forget the name of every. It was the first one on your website. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. God, you know how many? I think every one is me not knowing the name of the piece, and then me hating myself for not knowing the name. That has definitive moments in it, right? Like moments where like everybody listening is like, oh, okay, that a bunch of stuff just happened coordinatedly, and that was an event. And there was a certain energy leading up to that. For sure. So you, you're thinking about these things and like, how are you thinking about it specifically in this piece? The, t- the intentions of it? Or the intent, the- yeah, the intentions of it. Yeah. Um, like just, just describe the piece, the idea behind it. Okay. So I'm quite honest about the source material of the, this piece, which is, um, it's a new source material for me and it's in perhaps something we don't talk about so often, or maybe I'm, I set up a disclaimer that it's, more personal than the source material for many of my pieces. My grandmother has um, Parkinson's disease, like really advanced, which is a super strange um, 
disease to watch sort of take hold of somebody because it's um it's not actually it manifests itself physically but it's actually it's not a physical problem so it's actually like your brain works and your body works but the two can't communicate you just can't tell your arm to grab the coffee cup that you want and it's a so there's a real strange kind of schism there in those control mechanisms and i found it very moving and painful and and un- unbelievable to watch the simplest simplest tasks were just like filled with this intensity of frustration watching her just trying to pick up this pencil or and the kind of mixture of physical stress and psychological stress and emotional stress was somehow very provocative for me um and and very moving and and informed a lot of the energy i put into this piece the main way that i get at that is that it's really in some ways of it's very focused on the cello actually this piece is and the rest of the ensemble at times is the very opening, for example, does a does a series of sort of it's like a sort of three gesture, um, let's say section um, or phrase with the cello not being present, and um, then the cello comes in, and, and in the beginning, the sort of first half of the piece, the the ensemble is like, let's say it's the teeth and the lips and the the lungs, and the cello is the tongue. The cello is the thing that gives voice to the actual sort of syncs them all together as a cohesive body, um, and then later there's a sort of fracture, and that tongue if you will or that the cello is 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 isolated and sort of the there's a progressive fracturing of that ensemble body yeah but in terms of how i instilled that frustration into the into the material itself there's a lot of reorientation of the limbs so the the cellist is playing behind her finger she's pulling upwards there's a lot of yeah intentional kind of dislodging and, and and rupturing of the kind of semantics of movement that are usually go into making a pure tone, a single note. Are people supposed to sense the frustration of it? Like, does it look, I, because I only heard an audio recording and people are, are going to only be able to hear an audio yeah, recording yeah, yeah. there. Is it supposed to look uncomfortable and frustrating that the cellist is doing something that's difficult? Like, are people going to look at it and be like, that's purposely difficult? Or are they saying, oh, she's having a difficult time? I think it reads that way. For sure. It's awkward and it's painful to play. And I think that that registers visually for sure.
the physicality and the movement. Mm-hmm. Is this something that's just this piece because it's coming from that source material? Um, right. Yeah, yeah, that source material, which is like a close relative with a debilitating disease, mm-hmm. or like, or do you explore it in other ways? Yeah, I yeah. do explore it. Yeah, I'm, I'm very concerned with the relationship between physical motion and musical form in general. Yeah, and I, and I guess I, I got there as well because, well, I work a lot with noise and sort of. Yeah, chaotic timbres that you can't, whose energy you can sort of corral and influence, but you can't necessarily cage in a single symbol of saying. So you have to indicate pressure and sort of distance, and you have to find it most often in the most efficient way to communicate those things are by a, a tablature, or by a choreography of the body. I don't work with narrative or kind of overt, yeah, let's say dramatic narratives very often. But I'm also, I work with change a lot. Like there's a lot of dramatic action in my work. I'm not interested in static forms. And I focus a lot on the physical gesture behind sound production. Um, I think I was drawn there. So if you think of... Just as an example, like let's say a bass drum, right? You're rubbing the, the skin of the bass drum and you're whoosh, whoosh, you're sort of moving your hand back and forth. You're hearing all sorts of parametric change there. You're hearing frequency change, sort of which little band of that is being filtered of the white noise. You're hearing volume change. You're hearing maybe change in the amount of friction that this that the, the sort of sort of almost a rhythmic detail if you go if you go so slow that the skin is maybe rubbing against to the point that it's puncturing um so there's all sorts of parametric change but it's coming out of the same physical source that same muscular input i'm into that i i was into that you know maybe even more so 6 years ago but this idea of change being non-dialectical of like radical transformation happening without it being this is counterposed against this and the two things are different and then they change together and they produce this synthesis i i wanted radical differentiation without dialectics when when did you start going in that direction when mm-hmm. when were you like okay now it's just time for me to see how much i can make a bass drum with one motion sound completely different from itself so neve is a piece that comes quickest to mind although that is preceded by the first piece I really did in the electroacoustic music studio, which is called Cesaurus. And I feel like the stories kind of go hand in hand. So maybe I'll, I'll start with Cesaurus. This is not a uncommon phenomenon, but I did have the kind of classic epiphanic kind of experience in the electronic music studio for the first time. Why was it revelatory for me or why was it a, a really important space? I had up until that point been drawn to noise, which I just, We'll use as a general category. If you'd like me to specify it further, I can. But at the time, before I got into the studio, I, I don't know. I was trying to get at it with extended techniques and they just, it just wasn't giving me either the specificity in the noise that I wanted. It was also felt I couldn't get away from the influence of, of Lachenmann or, or where those extended techniques came from. So I wanted this noise, but I wasn't being able to get it through instruments. And when I went into the studio and got a microphone and was able to both perform the actions myself, and use a much broader palette from scraped glass to scraped stone to pulled wood to all sorts of, to have a boundless sort of palette, I was able to access a kind of intimacy and intricacy and delicacy within these chaotic timbres that I had previously not been able to access working through human bodies, through notation, through instruments. And then I started analyzing them and, and figuring out ways to sort of in these like um, dense collages of noise to, to find structure, harmonic structure, using sonograms and different spectral techniques to kind of um, wrap instruments in and out of these kind of grittier, grittier passages, um, grittier, thicker textures. Uh, yeah, so that was my kind of introduction into that world. But I realized... Um, after I did a couple pieces like this, this kind of electroacoustic stuff, um, which with these dense, dense specific noises that were with ensembles wrapped around them, you know, I was originally drawn to those noises because they had a kind of chaotic intensity. They have, they had a vitality that you couldn't predict. You could, you could harness it. You could sort of shape it, but you couldn't say, oh, well, this frequency is going to pop at this moment or this screech is going to be exactly this pitch. And, um, I liked that unpredictability, that resistance in the material. But when you put it on a tape and you throw it out speakers, then, you know. Of course, it does the same unpredictable exactly. thing every time. So it's a I, cynical way of actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the first piece where I kind of confronted that was in 2008, which was called Neve. And it was for um, a big oil drum, actually, and and also in an ensemble. So it was a purely acoustic piece, but it was um, surrounded around this, yeah, like a big, you know, 55-gallon kind of trash can with a cover on it. And I got one of these things and I put it in my living room and for, you know, four months I or five or however long it took me to write it, like scraped it and banged it and bowed it and figured out every little frequency detail of it and analyzed it. And, but then in the final piece, like it's actually, it's actually performed with it with a real oil drum. Um, 
So it's not recorded, although I under, like, I knew which techniques would give me sort of different frequency bands, or I knew the acoustic behaviors I could kind of predict that would come out of um, the oil drum. And so it still translates sort of piece, performance to performance. And they, they still, they still mix, it, I think. It, it, does your notation work? In, in that a way? piece? Like, oh, and, by that, and, and by that, I mean, hey, you know, we're some band in China that you've never heard of. You don't, we don't have money to send you here to help us do it, but give us the score and we'll perform yeah. it. And you can be like, here it is and be completely confident that they're going to get the whatever differentiating frequency from an oil drum that you intended. Mm -hmm. Do you have to be there to be like, actually, it's this? Or are you good enough now at getting it down that you can send it wherever and it'll still be a consistent piece? Yeah. Um, well, with that piece, I actually used a video. So I sent video performance notes as well as the, okay. the kind of graphics, which I think is a tool that maybe we can use more and more. Look, I'm not even, even when I'm there, I don't necessarily translate it that well. I mean, I do a lot of this... I really am physically engaged in the material I make. So I'm bowing a cardboard box. That's not a random idea. It's like actually a gesture that I'm, I'm trying out and figuring out exactly the pacing of it, the rate of change, the, the pressure arc. And, and once I find it, I try to notate it as specifically as I can. But, um, I'll oftentimes be with a player and have it notated exactly as I think it should be. I will perform, I will do the example live, like play it myself. And still it, there's a lot of lot that that's lost in translation. Even being there is not perfect, I guess is my point. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Cool. We've been talking for a while. Hey, thank you for doing thank this. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's really interesting. <laughs>